2: i'm scott wapner and you're listening to cnbc's halftime report the podcast the most profitable hour of the trading day we record this live weekdays at 12 eastern listen in carl thanks welcome to the halftime report i'm scott wapner front and center this hour the state of stocks the dow hitting another new record high today the nasdaq though continuing its losing streak where is your money heading in the months ahead? That's the big question, the big debate as well on this program. And we'll do that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Courtney Gibson is the president of Loop Capital Markets. Rob Seachin, the co-founder and managing partner of New Edge Capital Group. Josh Brown, John Adjaren, good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. I'll show you that new record high for the Dow today. Highs of the day, too. Better than 170 for the Dow. 34,402. S&P, not that far away from its own high, about 40 points Give or take Nasdaq. As I said, that losing streak its going on the longest one since October. It's on pace for the worst week in a couple of months was just trying to get positive. It's dipped negative by about five points. Josh Brown, start with you. What's going on? What, what's happening within the markets here, do you think?
3: I I think that uh, markets are market participants, let's say, are starting to anticipate the idea of an economy that is supported by Uh, its own inherent growth engines and not uh, reliant on Federal Reserve stimulus as far as the eye can see. I do think we're getting closer to the moment where the Fed's going to have to make an offhanded remark about tapering uh, asset purchases, which I think would be appropriate. Unfortunately, uh, there's no great way to come out and say it. During the last taper tantrum in 2013, Bernanke kind of snuck it in there during congressional testimony, not during a Fed meeting. The market freaked out. Uh, and it was really the highest multiple growth stocks that got hit the hardest, and that's exactly what's going to happen this time. And I think market participants are sort are, are, are sort of starting to sniff that out. Uh, so Treasuries have bottomed recently, gold has bottomed recently, the yen is bottomed recently. These are all uh, risk off trades. You do have this momentum in financials and cyclicals. I think that should hold up okay. But the growth stocks, the things that are most susceptible. To a tapering of asset purchases and then a subsequent eventual uh, rise in, in rates are, are really the epicenter of the damage I was looking at the ARC ETFs judge nothing to do with like Arc like they're not doing a good job the, Arc the company, but just that kind of that theme mm-hmm. right that, that, um, that idea of who cares about cash flow let's just buy user growth or whatever um, the flagship uh, arc fund is down 29% from its high. Yeah. That's a massive drawdown. More. And of Even course, more now, you know right? most we're, of the money came in at the top. You,
2: I don't know if you have a, a monitor, yeah. you know, our air where, where you're sitting in the way you're looking at things, but we're showing it on the screen right now. It's down 32.3% off of its year high. Your, your point is, is well taken. So what you're essentially saying, Josh, is the market's walking itself up to a taper tantrum of, of some kind.
3: Yeah, it's gonna happen and it won't be very different from last year, but I think it's healthy. It should happen. I'd rather you do it sooner than later. Um, if you just, really quickly, if you go back and look at what that was like for investors, uh, May and June were pretty disastrous for stocks. Rates spiked, um, but then by July, they were already like reassuring us and walking things back and the markets were able to stabilize. They did that seven months in advance of the actual start of tapering, which was officially announced December uh, of of that year, of 2013, they spent all of 2014 gradually buying less assets each month, and then you didn't get the first rate hike until December of 14. Mm -hmm. So 17, uh, excuse me, almost 20 months of prepping markets for that first rate hike. Like, I feel like that process probably has to start this summer, if you keep getting blowout employment numbers and job openings skyrocket and housing activity exceeding any other calendar year outside of 2006, if this is what the pace of the real economy is, and we think it's somewhat sustainable, it's not appropriate to buy $40 billion worth of mortgage bonds and $80 billion worth of treasuries well, every month without end. That, it, it makes no sense. That's, you know, that's exactly what Rick Reader has told
2: us within the last couple of weeks well Rick is smart yeah court you know I have this viewer question in front of me that came in a few moments ago and I think it's a good one because I think a lot of people are are asking themselves this or or want advice from people like you when the ten year was rising says Kelly from Columbus Ohio Tech was uh, systematically tanking right we saw that and we talked about it every day as yields have lowered and stabilized, which they are lower again today, I think 158, something like that, tech is still dropping. So if higher yields were causing tech to sell off, why are lower yields causing tech to continue to sell off?
4: Well, great to see you guys to get today, of course. You know, and I think it's a really interesting question. And I think in theory of economics, right, and what we know about how yields should impact growth stocks, the way that it reacted initially is what you would expect. What you're seeing now, you'd say, why in the world is this happening? And that's what the viewer is saying. You have to look beyond the surface of kind of how yields are impacting because that's not the only thing that impacts these growth stocks, these large tech names. When you think about raising cash or when large institutions need to get liquidity, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the most liquid stocks. And that's what you see in these big mega cap names. And so every time they need to raise cash to do something else, if they want to rebalance, if they want to do anything, they're pulling it from Apple, they're pulling it from Facebook. Those names have a disproportionate weight in the overwhelming majority of portfolios and so when it comes time for liquidity needs that's where investors are going. And so I personally as you know Scott am a heavy believer in tech especially some of those big mega cap tech names that are well positioned in this marketplace for the future unfortunately in the short term whenever you see again like a facebook provide knockout earnings you're going to see people take money off the table same thing for apple um and so you know yields are impacting growth stocks to a certain extent as they should potentially and that's a debate in and of itself that uh You know, we can have one day, but ultimately it's not just yields and what's happening with the 10 year that's causing some of the turmoil that you're seeing in the stock market, particularly around those mega cap growth names.
2: Well, obviously, you know, people, if they're moving out of equities and they're concerned about where things may be, I don't know, maybe they're going into Bitcoin and they're going into bonds as as a safety play. Doc, you've been looking for the correction that Josh Brown uh, says the market is, is sniffing around. Right now, whether it's mm-hmm. the earliest stages of what may be a taper tantrum or what have you, is this the correction that you've been looking for?
1: Yeah, I think this is part of it, Scott. Um, and I'm not so much disagreeing with Josh, but I think Josh and Courtney both made some great points here. Um, and one of those is that Josh said, for instance, that when the taper ha- tantrum happens, you know, those. Stocks, those mega cap growth stocks are gonna be the ones hit hardest. I disagree there, Josh, because that's already happening. They're anticipating it this time much more so what do we than dis- like you what say Bernanke we leaking. Well, no. So I I'm saying when it comes out, that's when they don't. I think that's the buy rumor sell news in reverse. In other words, I think they're reacting to it well, now, I guess, Josh. I, guess I think we'll they're getting ahead goes. of it. Yeah. I do. I agree with you. But I think what's going to happen, Scott and Josh, is that we're going to see people reacting. I mean, the reason that, you know, every virtually every earnings on the tech side has been sold, Um, virtually all of them. You know, you've got an exception here and there. But even, you know, whether it's Amazon popping to thirty six hundred and then flat on the day immediately after that, or whether it's Apple up two or three percent and then down on the day, all of that stuff is happening because people are using these times as exit points, just as Courtney said also, drawing funds from those areas. I think when we finally get to the point, Josh, where they do the the taper tantrum-ish thing again, that these stocks will have already anticipated it by what we're seeing right now. You cited the ARK fund down 29 or 30%, um, and obviously that's accurate, and I think that's a sign that people have already started their exit from those big stocks and from those stocks without earnings as you say you know whether it's the zooms of the world or whether it's the teledocs and all the rest and all of those are in kathy's portfolio i think they're ahead of themselves and i think after we get to that point then those stocks will actually then bottom out and start picking up again well, while I the rest hope, of the market reacts right to about that, that taper tantrum
3: Let me just say really quickly. I know we want to get to Rob. please, go ahead. He looks like a million dollars right now, by the way. I just let me just respond to that. I hope you're right. And that that is exactly what happens, that the damage is done in advance. And then by the time they say, hey, guys, 120 billion a month worth of asset purchases is not sustainable going forward, not necessary, whatever. And then that becomes the moment where you say, "Okay, risk back, risk back on. I hope you're right. And one reason why you might be. Jerome Powell's first full year as a Fed governor was actually 2013. So he had a front row seat for the, the, the cadence of that whole plan to go from massive yep. QE to taper to raise rates. He was in the chair, which makes me hopeful that he can stage manage this thing uh, from the lessons that he learned. Yep. So maybe you'll be right about that. But I agree yep. with you. It is happening now well, already.
2: What Rob Sechen? you take everybody else's view into perspective, what's your own on where you think the market is going, whether we are going to experience a correction and, you know, maybe um, a a one of some kind of
5: size? Right. Right. So. uh I think there's going to be volatility in the short term around everything that every investor is looking at one being interest rates two being inflation data picking up there's definitely inflation interest rates are definitely going higher you have a stock market right now that disagrees with the bond market the stock market is fighting to reposition into cyclicals out of the most uh, most widely known names these high quality tech names I'm not saying they're selling them in mass I'm saying it's modest repositioning but the effect that that has has been significant we're seeing a lot of strange reactions in in market data you can use ETFs as a proxy the Treasury falls from 175 to 156 in this quarter energy leads and financially. Lead financials lead that is a rotation trade you're coming out of the technology which has been one of the worst performers underperformed the S&P and I think that has to do with the fact that many uh, many forecasters are not as convinced in the power of the reopening trade is the loudest bulls I would describe myself as as one of the the more bullish folks in the intermediate term but very worried in the short term and I'm going to use any of that short term volatility to accumulate. Um, We've been calling for a rolling opening of economies globally and you've seen ebbs and flows. You've seen Brazil open and close, Japan open and close, India open and close. And I think when everything gets open, it's positive for value, it's negative for growth. Stocks are telling you that, and I think the economy looks like a coiled spring ready to jump forward. And I also see that in profits. And one more thing, Scott, if I could make this point. Um, When you look at loan officer surveys, uh, loan officers have relaxed their standards for business lending, and yet loan demand from business is still very weak. What does that tell you? That tells you that the hesitation that these businesses have acts as a coiled spring when they finally believe what's going to happen, and stocks are telling you that, bonds are not.
2: Yeah. But what if what if I introduced the the idea that the market is also coming around to the idea of higher taxes, both from a personal standpoint and from a corporate standpoint, because, I mean, if Biden gets his way, if President Biden gets his way, people are paying more taxes and corporations aren't getting as sweet of a deal as they had for the last four years. And you're going to have to rethink what the earnings picture, you know, Courtney looks like in that new environment and maybe the market is sniffing that out too and perhaps more than anything else that should be the lead story that the market's not dumb it's sniffing that out and it doesn't like it
5: (laughs) there's no is that a question for me Scott? a question for courtney oh sorry go ahead
4: um well a couple of things one i think um as josh said jerome powell in particular i think he learned from that first full you know solo on the stage and this time around He's not. He does not. They do not want to upset the markets. They will be signaling beyond belief. They'll be signaling so strongly that I think a blind person will be able to see it. Okay. I'm. I have a ton of faith in what the Fed is going to do to make sure that we see an orderly market. That's number one. As it relates to the taxes, regardless of so your much political views, how you feel about. Let's stop. Let's, you let let's what? stop.
2: Forgive me for interrupting you, but. Um- I mean, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know about that, right? The, the market is going to react regardless of whether j Powell How? holds its hand or not. The market, as no, Josh said, what, once the market starts to sniff out a taper, there's not going to be anything that, that j Powell and company can do. Unless they just say we're not going to taper, you don't have
4: to sniff it out. You don't have to sniff it out. He's telling you we're going to eventually taper as the and and. No, let's, he's let's not. Look at this, he's right? not. If if they are deciding to that's taper, that's the point. On, that's the whole point. If he's not. If they're deciding to taper, when they decide to taper, as the economy does better, that should actually signal to the market, regardless of how the market reacts rationally or irrationally. And we've talked about irrational reactions of the market. If they begin to taper, when they begin to raise rates that they've talked about, that means that this economy on a broad scale is doing better. We can talk about the numbers on payroll. We can talk about jobs. It is not as broad of a recovery as we're making it seem. And that is why they're sitting the way that they are right now. There have been tons of very smart economists who have talked about this. And so, Scott, I do believe they will absolutely signal. And I do believe still that the market's going to sit there and say, oh! I didn't know this was going to happen. I agree with you, but it's not going to be long lived. It's not going to be long lived by any stretch of the imagination. You should expect it to happen because it always does. But the market will come back to its senses and we will get back to where we should be, which is saying if they begin to do these things, that means that our economy is growing. It will be robust. And I want to get back to your comment, though, about taxes and that growth. I'm not quite sure, and I don't have a crystal ball on Capitol Hill, but I think regardless of party affiliation, there are going to be some people who say I don't want my taxes to go up. I don't want business taxes to go up because we know what that implies. And I don't believe it actually passes this go-round. So mark my word, you can put a stake in the ground here on it. I don't personally think that it actually gets done. If it does, it will be catastrophic.
2: Okay. Josh Brown, you want to take a stab at that part of the conversation? Because I do think that the prospect of higher taxes is having an impact on the stock market. And it's, it's, it's capping whatever sort of positive feeling may exist in the economy, that this Biden bump for the market, and it's, and it's been very much that, is going to be crimped because of his tax plan that may very well get through. Maybe not to the magnitude that he wants at the very top end of his wish list, but Senator Manchin has already signaled that he'd be willing for a compromise of some kind on, on the corporate tax rate. Maybe it's not going go to go. the
4: compromise is different than where it is, Scott. Sorry.
5: Yeah,
2: but, but it's going <laughs> up. My point is, it's going up from where it is. That okay. means earnings aren't going to be the same.
5: It's the change in the change rate of change relative to expectations, Scott. So if it comes in at where Thank they you. present it, that's an absolute uh, negative. But if it comes in less than as presented if it was political posturing then it's an unambiguous positive also on on the taper. Side of things in May of 2013 that was the last chance we had to buy before the markets started to rip. They had a little volatility around there but that was the last chance we we had to buy before markets started to go and I would argue that there is some there is some positioning some trading going on to agree with you around taxes because investors are saying we have ten years of gains in these high quality tech stocks if I'm going to do some repositioning I might as well take it from places where I have the highest gains because taxes are only going up and it's going to make it infinitely more painful if I wait to make these trades so I think that's why we're seeing a lot of this strange behavior in markets it has to do with taxes it has to do with interest rates with inflation I think all that plays into the to, the, to what we're seeing uh, play out in markets every day.
2: Let me, let me hit a story b- before I get to um, you know, something else. I, w- I wanna talk about Uber for a moment. I wanna do it because it plays into the kind of conversation that we're, we're having in terms of reopening, what's gonna happen as, as we do get on with the rest of our lives, as, as I've been saying. And now I think we have a real debate, Josh, as to whether Uber is a reopen play or if Uber is a reopen problem. And you have maintained repeatedly that it's a reopened story. And now with wanting to go out to a restaurant rather than maybe get delivery, and now Uber is, delivery is becoming a bigger part of that business. A shortage of drivers, higher prices, who knows what the
3: impact is going to be there, the revenue miss. What am I supposed to do with Uber now? Well, I'm, I'm an investor. I'm long. I agree with what Morgan Stanley had to say, <laughs> that the weakness is, is viable. Um, I think it's as simple as, the cost of drivers is going up. The cost of everything is going up, by the way. Um, so, so now we're getting a better look at what happens when there is uh, a bigger labor shortage than what people thought there would be. And you're going to see this in home construction. You're going to see this pretty much everywhere, maybe with the exception of, uh, of retail. Uh, but you're going to see this everywhere. It's tough to find drivers and they're gonna to have to pay them more. And in some states, they're gonna to have to do bigger benefits packages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's really what was the issue for the stock right now and nothing else. I don't think the growth rate for Uber as the economy reopens is gonna be affected. Uh, I think the demand is there, and I think it's one of the best ways to play the reopening. Uber, The Uber Eats business, by the way, is not going to shrink back down to its pre-pandemic level. Um, for, very, for the very obvious reason that you now have tens of millions of people who have tried it and they'll continue to use it. But getting the rides business back to where it was in 2018, 2019, I think can make this stock a rocket higher. Okay. And I want to be long the name.
2: Court, here's what Jim Cramer said today. Quote, I don't know if I respect this business as much as I once did. I think it was great that they moved aggressively mm-hmm. into delivery because we didn't want to go to the restaurants. That's over. We want to go to the restaurants more than I've ever seen. This is somebody who owns a couple of restaurants. People don't want delivery if there's a restaurant nearby. Is, is Josh dismissing the delivery part of this story too much and the impact on the stock moving forward?
4: Let me tell you, Scott, and I love Jim, as he knows. Um, but Josh is 100% right. I, too, am a holder of Uber. And when we think about delivery, right, I agree. It is not going back to pre pandemic levels. And on top of that, when people do want to go to Jim Cramer's restaurant, guess what they're not going to be doing? They're not going to be driving cars every single time. If they want to have a couple of drinks, they're not going to be hailing a taxi home. They're going to be going on that wonderful app on their phone and they're going to be ordering an Uber. People forget how influential this business and how impactful this business was pre-pandemic. Candidly, during the pandemic, though slowing, it still was alive and well, and how it is going to impact us post-pandemic.
2: What if a significant part of its growth side of the business is going to have a different trajectory on the other side of the pandemic? I feel like we're all dismissing that. How are you guys dismissing that? We're not
4: dismissing it. They have what you want a business to have, which is a diversified revenue stream and brand power as well as pricing power. We forget that regardless, you know, most people actually that are the bears on this stock point to regulatory issues. They point to the whole issue around rate, you know, drivers getting paid more, et cetera. They have pricing power. Uber has pricing power with its cons- with the consumer. No one's dismissing it, Scott. It's just it's, it should not overweigh the opportunity that exists with this name. At Loop, we cover it. Rob Sanderson and our team, we have a $69 price target. It absolutely gets there with delivery, and ride hailing people still say and unfortunately even if they're ordering a lift they're saying hey i'm gonna call an uber right that brand is like many of the other staple brands that we've seen over the last hundred years and it's not going anywhere at all and it's going
3: to continue to to grow yeah so to to make to the when i hear it's, it's a it's a huge mischaracterization of the reality in the united kingdom they had to reclassify drivers, and that mm-hmm. cost them six hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's that's accounting. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that they'll have to do that with all of their drivers worldwide. Nobody on the street thinks that. Um, we we we've talked about we've talked about what passed in California becoming a national model for the way uh, drivers are are classified. Uh, I do think there's going to be this quote-unquote third way, which is da- uh, Dara's. Uh, proposition but um we have to just understand that a 600 million dollar reduction because of the way that you're classifying the people who are doing the driving that's not the kind of thing that you should expect to happen every quarter in every geography so that's now past us and i think the focus of the street on uber is going to be how quickly cities and 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 regions reopen and how much growth in rideshare we see as a result of that. And I think that part of the story is bulletproof. We know from the regions of the world that have reopened where Uber has a presence, that that demand for rides comes back just as quickly as it disappeared. We know that. So we're going to see that in the United States this summer. And I think it's going to be super bullish. OK,
2: look, before we, we before we take a break, I do want to get you a story that is new at noon today and the end of an era, at least the end of one of the most talked about sagas ever on Wall Street. As I reported earlier today, according to sources, Carl Icahn sold the last of his Herbalife position this morning at market, about five million shares in a trade I'm told was handled by Jeffries. Icahn had sold a chunk back in January. If you remember, he gave up his board seats, too. Based on my calculations, he made more than $1.3 billion in Herbalife, all told. Famously taking the other side of Bill Ackman's billion-dollar short bet, that led to the infamous brawl on this show back in January of 2013.
6: If he stays long Herbalife, he will lose his entire investment, that is my prediction. This could be the mother of all short squeezes.
2: The war of words between two hedge fund heavyweights is heating up with Carl Icahn bashing Bill Ackman over his short position in Herbalife.
6: Ackman, he does pump and dumps. He's got one of the worst reputations on Wall Street. And I'm going to tell you this Herbalife is a classic example of what he does. And I'm telling you, he's like the crybaby in the schoolyard. Carl Icahn thought, you know what? This guy's roadkill on the hedge fund highway. I'm never going to have to worry about this kid again. He's not going to even have the resources to sue me. This is not an honest guy, and this is not a guy who keeps his word, and this is a guy who takes, takes advantage of little people. But I, mean, I wouldn't have an investment
7: with Ackman if you paid me to do it, if Ackman paid me to do it.
6: He's not used to someone standing up to him. I told Carl after the whole thing, called me up, and he literally said, you know, Bill, we can be friends now. And I simply said to him, I said, look, Carl, you are no friend of mine. And, and that was it. I never said that I want to be friends with, with you, Bill. I wouldn't okay. be friends okay, with Carl. you. And okay. I would, you said okay, to Carl. me, you'd, you'd like to be friends so that we could invest I, together. Carl, I have no interest. Uh, do you think I want to invest with you? Okay, let's, let's move on. I would to invest with you Let's, let's you move on. Man on earth.
2: Be... Eight and a half years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. Carl Icahn has always maintained his belief in Herbalife's business and his activist role in that story. Spoke to him today. He told me the following quote. I think this is an example of activism working very well. It was certainly an interesting ride fighting off bear raids as well as aiding the company in their numerous negotiations with the government. But all's well that ends well. and We wish the company the best of luck in the future. As I mentioned, according to my calculations, he made about one point three billion dollars. Ackman, he exited back in twenty eighteen. We're back after this note. A mystery chart will show you a restaurant stock doubled in the last year. Bullish call out on it today. Is it too late? Too little? Too late? Courtney owns it. She'll tell you next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
8: Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. A major new report from the United Nations says that cutting methane emissions is critical to slowing climate change. The report says that the oil and gas industry is one of the biggest sources of methane emissions, but that fixing pipeline leaks and other measures could be low-cost solutions. New York's attorney general says that the broadband industry funded millions of fake comments that were supported in support or submitted in support of the repeal of net neutrality back in 2017. She says that a group called Broadband for America spent over $4 million on the campaign. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing a new election bill into law. He says that it's meant to stop fraud, but critics say that it will limit voting. Fox News was the only network allowed to cover the signing. The rest of the media had to wait outside. And a pioneer in growing university endowment funds has died. David Swenson was Yale's chief investment officer for more than 35 years. He was an early proponent of schools investing in hedge funds, private equity and real estate, a strategy that became known as the Yale model and copied by many. David Swenson was 67 years old. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to
2: you. All right. We appreciate that, Rahel. Thank you. Well, there's a bullish call today, as we said, in the restaurant space. It was our mystery chart, and it's Darden Restaurants upgraded to outperform today at Cowan. They say it's fashionably late but ready for act two. Why? The stock's up nearly 20% already this year. Courtney, you own it. Um, So what do you think about this call? Too little, too late?
4: Oh gosh, um, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll go with their fashionably late. Um, I talked about this, I think on the show way back in December when I bought it and it was a great stock then. It is still a great stock now. I don't believe that it's all priced in. It kind of trailed some of its peers a bit, although it is a market leader on a number of fronts, tremendous management team, data analytics. It's a very, very strong brand. And honestly, here in Atlanta, There was a two hour wait at yard house, two hour wait. (laughs) So, you know, I think that there is a tremendous opportunity for growth here. And I'm glad they uh, finally saw that.
2: Okay. and after the bell, Josh Brown, the shack, shake shack reports today after the bell. You, of course, famously uh, own that one. Your expectations for another reopen play that you've certainly spoken a lot about.
3: Yeah, I actually I like the setup here. The stock's in an 18 percent drawdown from its highs in, in mid March. This is a company that's uh, beaten earnings 75 percent of the time over the last eight quarters that they've reported. So pretty good track record of of uh, exceeding uh, Wall Street's expectations. It's also one of the best performing restaurant stocks ever in the last uh, five years. It's up 200 percent in the last one year. It's up 120 percent, double the performance of Chipotle. Um, this has just been an absolute home run. So now you have it in a drawdown. And if you don't have a position on, I'm not saying you have to buy ahead of the earnings, but this volatility uh, that's been created in growth stocks, maybe this is your chance for, for an on-ramp. It's a sub $5 billion market cap with a brand that is globally recognized for quality and deliciousness. Uh, and I think it should be a part of anyone's <laughs> portfolio um, that that uh, is thinking about growth in the future because I think this company could have thousands of units someday in, in metropolitan areas all over the world. Yeah, airports, et cetera. All right. Thank you for that. The annual Sown
2: Investment Conference, it returns next week featuring some of the biggest names in investing. Impactive Capital's Lauren Taylor Wolf is one of the presenters. She joins us next in a CNBC exclusive.
0: What does it mean to be rich?
2: Several big-name speakers expected at the annual Sone Investment Conference next week, including Larry Robbins, David Einhorn, Brad Gerstner, and Bill Gurley. Leslie Picker joins us now with Impactive Capital's Lauren Taylor-Wolf, who is one of the presenters as well. Hey, Les.
9: Hey, Scott, that's right. And Lauren, thank you very much for being here ahead of uh, next week's event. Uh, Because you so rarely do TV, we rarely get a chance to hear from you. I just wanted to kick things off with uh, you explaining your strategy to the audience because what you do at Impactive is a little bit different uh, within the activism realm as well as the ESG, environmental social governance realm. Uh, So can you just explain a little bit about your firm?
0: Sure. Thanks for having me. So, impactive capital strategy combines activism with impact, as the name would suggest. But we're different from most of the ESG firms out there, which are passive and inclusion-exclusion in nature, or big pools of capital, in that we're only managing eight to 12 names in our portfolio, and then we're engaging heavily with the management teams of those companies, to unlock value with our ideas around both capital allocation ideas,
9: as well as environmental, social, and governance ideas that drive long-term value. And one of those plays, last time you were at Sone, you presented on uh, Wyndham. Uh, and that was back yeah. in 2019 because last year's event was, of course, canceled due to the pandemic. Um, since then, over the last two years, Wyndham has actually risen a, a relatively respectable 27 percent. I use the word respectable because, obviously, uh, we have had a pandemic in there. And many of its peers uh, have done significantly worse than a 27 percent return over the last two years, with the exception of maybe Hilton. Um, that's still, though, half the returns of the S&P 500. And now that the world is kind of changing, reopening, how do you feel about Wyndham uh, at this point in time? Do you still like it?
0: Sure. So, you know, Wyndham, you know, when we were modeling Wyndham, we did not model in a once in a century global pandemic. But what, we're, what we did deliberately do was underwrite the resilience of the economy in the mid-scale segment of the model. And when you look at just the financial performance, REVPAR for that segment was down, for the economy segment last year, was down only 30 to 40 percent, where REVPAR in the upper scale was down closer to 60 to 80 percent. Just this April, so the last month that was reported for the economy segment, REVPAR was up single digits. And in the mid-scale, it's just 10 percent below 2019. This compares with down 45 percent. Uh, in red bar for the upper scale folks like Hilton and Marriott and others. And so we're really very excited about Wyndham because I can assure you the rest of Wall Street was not expecting the hotel numbers to be back towards 2019 until anywhere near 2023 and 2024. So Wyndham is firing on all cylinders. We're really excited. Uh, We believe we got it right with um, the, you know, underwriting the economy segment. And just looking from January of 2020 till today, Wyndham has outperformed all the hotel peers by a wide margin.
9: Now, I have to ask you, because you are an ESG expert, what do you make of what's going on with the electric vehicles trend right now, particularly those who have been acquired by SPACs have seen a significant run up, uh, some significant volatility? Um, Do you see this as an ESG tailwind here? Do you think it's excitement about something else? Uh, What do you make of this whole area?
0: So, listen, I think there are a lot of story stocks. And a lot of these electric vehicle companies or hydrogen companies or green economy and renewable plays have taken advantage of what I would describe as a structure with misaligned incentives to access the capital markets. But what we know about the capital markets and the stock market is that over the long run, it's a weighing machine, not a voting machine. And so I think that Similar to the past two SPAC cycles that we saw in 2003 and 2005, and then again in seven and eight, only 10 or 20% of these companies actually survive in the long run and do well. And I wouldn't expect to be different, uh, you know, this time around.
9: Wow. That is a bold call. 10 to 20 percent of these companies survive in the long run. We will keep an eye on that. Lauren Taylor-Wolf of Impactive, thank you for joining us. We will be looking forward uh, to hearing your presentation, as well as several others, including Larry Robbins, David Einhorn, uh, and some other folks, Brad Gerstner, who are all speaking at next week's SONE conference on May 12th. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much.
2: Les, thanks for bringing that to us. We always, of course, as you know, look forward to the Stone Conference. Been proud to have been a part of that for so many years now. Indeed. Yep. All right, Leslie Picker with that great interview. All right, coming up, John has unusual activities. Got three for you today as well, and we'll do it next. All right, Doc, I said you had a three for us today in unusual, which is unusual. (laughs) What do you have?
1: Yes, sir. Well,. Uh, today, Scott, we're going to kick it off with ANF, Abercrombie & Fitch. Uh, stock was right around the strike price, right around 40 probably 39.80. They were buying the 40 calls that expire the 28th of May, so not a regular expiration, end of May expiration. I bought these calls today, Scott, the at the monies, and if we get a bounce here, I'll sell an upside call against it. Second one, take a look at Taiwan Semi, uh, TSM, of course. The uh, stock was right around 115 bucks a share. They're buying the regular May expiration 120 calls. And like you said, a third one real quick, Juniper, JNPR. This is a weird strike, the 2673 strike, but they bought about 3,200 calls. Bought them really fast, Scott. This also is a May expiration. Um, I am in these calls as well. I'll be in all of these for probably a week to two weeks, Scott.
2: Okay. John, thank you. Up next, increasing diversity when it comes to investing. Market Access CEO Rick McVeigh tells us about his new initiative. You'll hear about it next. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I am Dominic Chu. We are keeping an eye on shares right now of Wells Fargo, one of America's biggest banks. You can see they're still up three quarters of one percent. However, you can see on that middle side of your screen there a dip of about 50 cents or so intraday in that stock price. This is on the heels of Bloomberg headlines saying that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau may be looking into Wells Fargo over some of its checking account practices. Those particular headlines are what's moving the shares lower right now. We are reaching out to Wells Fargo and the CFPB on these particular headlines. We'll let you know as we hear more back on our end here. But still, keep an eye on Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, a focus. Halftime is back after this commercial break. Keep it right here. Big news in the world of ESG today as the firm Market Access has announced a new initiative to help minority and women and veteran-owned broker-dealers get better access to larger asset managers like BlackRock. Rick McVeigh is the chairman and CEO of Market Access, joins us now live. Welcome. It's good to see you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can can you tell me what this means in practical terms for for diverse broker-dealers?
10: Well, it's all, it's all about increased trading opportunity for the diversity and minority-owned uh, dealer community. And the unique part about our business model is we've created this wide-open, all-to-all marketplace for global bond trading through open trading that eliminates trading barriers and allows anyone to trade with anyone else. And this is a great way to leverage that network and create new opportunities for the diversity of minority-owned dealers and at the same time, add important liquidity to our trading system.
2: Is, is that what's been the, the biggest problem? Is it, is it liquidity? Is it infrastructure? Is it just lack of access? All, all of the above?
10: Well, I, you know, I think the old model uh, does not promote uh, exposing orders more broadly to more dealer firms. The new model at Market Access does. Uh, so we're using technology to make it very easy for investment managers to have direct trading relationship with a broader community of dealers. And no better way for them to do that right now than to expand into the diversity and, and minority owned firms
2: like Courtney Loop Capital. Right. You're one of the firms I- involved and you're also on the board court of, of market access. Right.
4: Absolutely, Scott. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity. I mean, the way that this executive leadership team really collaborated to say, how can we not only be impactful as a part of our diversity initiatives, but also add value to our clients and our shareholders and increase increase liquidity in the markets more broadly? It's just a tremendous, tremendous initiative that uh, I'm proud to be a part of.
2: Rick, this this, I mean, would essentially create more liquidity for the bond market it, itself, correct?
10: It absolutely does. And uh, that's been our our thesis and our model from the beginning. And this is another important step forward uh, to introduce new liquidity into the order flow that we see from global institutional investment managers. And the other new feature to this is that we've unbundled a traditional bond trading revenue into two pieces. So the firms like Courtney's that have full service capabilities and trading can go on trading with institutional clients as they have been. But other firms can participate through post-trade revenue, through an unbundled revenue model. So there are two ways to really increase opportunity for the diversity of minority-owned firms.
2: Well, and institutional players, I assume, want to do this as part of their ESG efforts, which are obviously all the rage these days.
10: They, they absolutely do. This is an important priority for them. And the the best news is we're making it really easy for them to do. So we've had a great response, as you mentioned, from leading investment manager firms like BlackRock and Alliance Bernstein and others. And we think this is just going to be a great initiative for everyone. We're creating more opportunity for dealers and investors, and we're proud to be part of it and use our network in this way.
2: Yeah. Um, congratulations on your efforts. Uh, I know Courtney's proud of them as well. I didn't even realize only 20% of fixed income trading is done electronically in the industry, which is just an eye-opening stat in, in and of itself. Rick, appreciate your time very much. Thank you for being here. It's Rick McVeigh, Market Access. We'll do final trades next. I want to talk about a move that Courtney is making today. Why don't you tell us? I I was interested in it uh, when I heard about it. What what does it mean?
4: Yeah, so, Scott, um, I added to my coin position, Coinbase, obviously. um, We saw a tremendous pullback here. It dropped down to about 272 or so yesterday. And I I said this before, and I, I meant it. I think that this is not only just the leader in the crypto exchange world, I mean, it stores over 11% of cryptocurrency. But it is a customer acquisition story that you can follow, you can measure, and you can watch. And Coinbase is going to continue to lead in this crypto space. And it's a good way to uh, diversify away from Bitcoin and really be able to monetize on all the trading that occurs in the crypto space.
2: So you don't you don't own Bitcoin it itself, correct? This is this is your crypto play, right?
4: This is my personal crypto play and just what I see from institutional investors, um, both on the asset manager side and asset owner side. I mean, I think we saw today Miami and the county of Miami, Dade, Mm. made investments in cryptocurrency. So when you start to see just a wide adoption, it's huge.
2: I got to be real quick. What's your final trade court?
4: PayPal down 20 percent. Still tons of room to grow.
1: All right. Doc. Uber bought it during the show, Scott. Calls? Yay!
3: Calls. Yep. What oh, at yeah. the money? Bang! Okay. Josh? Uh, new highs for JP Morgan. Stock looks tremendous. Okay.
5: Elvis.
2: I
3: mean, wanted to touch Rob? of Greg,
5: got a touch of Elvis, Scott. Slumberger. <laughs> Up ten percent quarter to date and room to run. <laughs>
2: Alright, good stuff. Thanks everybody. The exchange Don't is do now. it yourself. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
7: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.